The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How about yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. It's good to see you. Yep, me too. Well, uh, Father, we had a couple of topics to get into tonight, but... One of the main ones was a uh, document recently put out by the Vatican, uh, I believe approved by Francis himself. Uh, this <clears throat> document, um, apparently, um, and just reading through some of the commentary on it, has um, imposed all kinds of, um, well, I guess, it posed a lot of questions and answers um, to the motu proprio that Francis put out uh, some time ago with all of the restrictions to the Latin Mass. And um, so in, in a lot of these questions and answers, it seems that he very clearly um, imposes a, a lot of very harsh restrictions on the, the Latin Mass. And so um, just among those, Father, apparently there's some uh, the traditional uh, Latin sacraments, the, the rites for those have uh, just been, been done away with, been prohibited, and uh, priests are forced to uh, con-celebrate the Latin Mass with the Novus Ordo Mass. And, and multiple other things. So, Father, um, I know you've, you've read through some of this. What is your um, response to this document put out by the Vatican? Well, I, I would say it's, uh, it's what Francis is there to do. I mean, that's why he was put in place by the St. Gallen Mafia, right? That's why he was chosen uh, by the modernists to uh, head up the, uh, the modernist church, the Novus Ordo, the, whatever you want to call it, New Order, the Conciliar Church, uh, he, he was anointed by the modernists to complete Vatican II, to bring Vatican II to its ultimate conclusion, which is basically the annihilation of the old faith and the annihilation of the old, um, the, you know, the, the, the church, the Catholic Church, and replace it with the, the Church of Modernism, Church of the World. Right? Um, that's, that's why, in spite of everything and all the scandals that have surrounded him and his uh, tenure as the Pope of the New Order, uh, why they've continued with him, because they expect that he's the man to actually um, execute uh, Vatican II. I, I should say, you might say, carry out the execution of the traditional Mass, the traditional faith, uh, the traditional sacraments, the traditional Church. Um, so... Um, I think the, the modernists grew rather frustrated by the, the temporizing of those who came after Paul VI, who brought in all the new Mass and the new sacraments. Uh, Paul VI uh, took over after John XXIII died, after the first session, session of the Council, Vatican II. And uh, he reigned from 1963 to 1978, 15 years. In those 15 years, uh, there was a total transformation. Uh, talk about a total makeover, you know, for the bad. 
bringing in uh, the modernism of Vatican II with a vengeance and uh, revising, you know, or I shouldn't say revising, it's replacing the Mass and replacing the sacraments of the Church with these modernist constructs. But then uh, things kind of stalled out a bit. And um, the modernists became very frustrated by that. They, they wanted to complete the job of Vatican II, which was to eradicate the, uh, the old traditional mass and traditional sacraments. Uh, I think the fear was that if you, if you allow the traditional mass and traditional sacraments to survive, uh, that the church would, in a sense, kind of rise from the dead. I know that sounds rather dramatic, but, you know, Voltaire, this about 1600, <clears throat> said that we have to eradicate the very memory of Christ and the very memory of Christianity from the face of the earth, because if we don't, the very memory of it will, will uh, enable it to rise from the dead. That's what he said. So he said we have to put uh, Christianity in its tomb and keep it there. And the only way to do that is to eradicate every memory of it. And I think the modernists had the same, uh, pretty much the same program. The trouble was that uh, they couldn't do it. Uh, for the first 20 years after the new, the new mass came, came in, 1968 was when they changed the right of ordaining priests and deacons and, and consecrating bishops. And then 69 is when they tried to impose a new mass. It was opposed by Cardinal Ottaviani and others, so it was... The imposition of the new Mass was uh, uh, postponed until April of 1970. <clears throat> and from that moment on, there was a, a war of extermination uh, against the traditional Mass. It was, it was a scream for voting everywhere. And um, we knew because we were ordained uh, uh, in those years. And um, everywhere we went, we, if we wanted to offer the traditional Mass, we were told, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't have that. The only priest I know who had any authorization to still continue offering the traditional liturgy, the traditional Mass, were in nursing homes where they couldn't influence anyone. <clears throat> but everyone else had to get in line and salute the new Mass. Like you know, they had to line up and, and get vaccinated you know, by the you know, modernist vaccine of the new, the new liturgy. <clears throat> so um, in any case... It was only in, when Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated bishops in 19, uh, 1988 that there was any, any daylight that was let in to allow the traditional Mass. And that was the 1962 liturgy of John Paul II. And uh, that was introduced with the Ecclesia Dei Commission and uh, with the condition that everyone who would attend it even under those very limited circumstances, would have to thereby at least tacitly admit that the tradition, the, the Novus Ordo was perfectly fine, perfectly Catholic. That it was just really a matter of taste, not a matter of faith or doctrine or conviction. <clears throat> and um, so they were, they, were tr tr very, they were trying to tightly control it. But they thought that, that our, after Archbishop of Heaven consecrated bishops to carry on the work of the traditional faith and the traditional mass, traditional worship of the church, they thought that they better move quickly to try to contain that. Because if they didn't, they would lose. And to that extent, I think they were right. <laughs> and so they, they allowed a very limited uh, use of the 1962 Latin mass. Uh, they wanted to keep their control over it. They wanted to keep people from 
leaving their dioceses and leaving their parishes, which were involved in this novacerdomania of, of uh, invention and experimentation and all the rest. Even even then, and um, of course, we're told that uh, then that was expanded. Uh, that was introduced by John Paul II, and it was expanded with Simorum Pontificum, uh, Benedict XVI. And the story we're told in his Traditionis Custodes uh, by Francis is that um, Benedict allowed a wider use of the 1962 Latin liturgy, Latin Mass in particular. He allowed that in the hopes that those who would attend it would be gradually kind of funneled back into the Novus Ordo. Um, and that eventually the Latin Mass would die out. And um, as the, the older generation of nostalgic um, Catholics longing for the former days would die off, the younger people would, would move in and that um, they would naturally gravitate to the new and the, the modern, right? Uh, and it didn't happen. And that's what Francis was complaining about in Traditionis Custodes. He said, um, the hope that um, John Paul II had, that allowing a wider use of the Latin liturgy um, in the Novus Ordo would uh, kind of attract the tradition-oriented um, people to come, and uh, that it, gradually, they would have their fill of it and basically learn to uh, accept, embrace, uh, even prefer the, the new liturgy. And that the, the traditional, the, well, the 1962 Latin Mass would die out with it as the generation, that generation died out. <clears throat> he said it didn't work. Quite the opposite was happening. He said there was becoming a haven, the 1962 Latin liturgy was becoming a, uh, a haven for resistance to the Novus Ordo. And um, he said it, it had to be stopped. And so he introduced through Traditionis Custodes, um, you know, restrictions, right? He wanted the Novus Ordo bishops to begin restricting it. And uh, I think he was very disappointed <laughs> that many of the Novus Ordo bishops did not uh, uh, strangle, you know, put a stranglehold on the traditional mass. They let it, they let it continue. And, uh, now, you know, he, he said, Francis said that his, um, his shot across the bow, as it were, of Traditionis Custodes was necessitated by reports from bishops around the world about activities of these Latin mass groups in their dioceses. And uh, Francis had to take action because it was reported to him that they were problematic for the Novus Ordo bishops. Well, there are those who uh, actually investigated, you know, what Francis sent out in queries about it and what they responded. And the Novus Ordo bishops evidently, for the most part, did not demand that Francis, you know, exterminate the, the Latin mass groups. <coughs> but Francis uh, basically just, uh, well, essentially lied in saying that uh, <clears throat> this is what he was called upon to do by the bishops, as though um, 
that um, he wanted us and everyone to believe that he was simply following their lead because they were clamoring for this. <clears throat> this was obviously not true. And, um, but as they say, that was a shot across the bow. Because even after he came out and said that the Novus Ordo bishops of the world were, were insisting that these Latin mass groups were problematic to them and they had to be contained, and even after Francis then acted upon that, and issued his Tradicionis Custodes, uh, many of the, these Novus Ordo bishops did not crush the Latin mat groups. They didn't, they didn't restrict them the way Francis said he wanted them restricted. And so this, this uh, latest thing was considered to be like the bomb, dropping the bomb, or um, someone referred to it as the, the Christmas ma massacre, you know. <clears throat> um, because uh, now Francis took the next step, of having some 11 dubia presented to him, which is ironic because uh, there were four dubia, maybe five, presented to him in years past about whether he really believes that anything is intrinsically evil. He never responded. He adamantly, uh, angrily uh, refused to respond. Uh, and now, now he sets it up so he gets 11 dubia that are presented to him, and he says that this latest... Uh, clarification. He say he's he's now clarifying these dubia about the use of the uh, Latin Mass and the Latin rites of the sacraments. <clears throat> and um, so this is this is meant to be more than a shot across the bow. This is meant to be a broadside. Okay. And he's putting these bishops on notice that uh, he's not playing games, that he intends to follow through. And um, he's going to start, uh, there are going to be consequences if they do not uh, take action against these Latin mass groups. So, it, the, the, uh, what did he say? Well, um, you know, among other things, he, he severely restricts the, the use of the 1962 Latin mass, right? Severely restricts that. Says not only does a priest have to have uh, actually approval from Francis himself, basically, to do this. Uh, he can only do it, uh, you know, rarely, and uh, can't do it in a parish church, right? It's very, very restricted there. And uh, anyone who assists him there has to have the approval of Francis too, like a deacon or anyone else, has to also be approved to be present for it. And uh, they can have no more... Uh, uh, traditional rite ordinations, no more ordinations of, of priests according to the traditional rite, uh, or confirmations, <laughs> can't do it. So he's just basically limited the use to uh, the 1962 uh, Mass liturgy, and that in itself is also uh, highly restricted, mm -hmm. okay? But the rest is eliminated according to him, right? <clears throat> there are a variety of other uh, restrictions that he's he's introduced here. Uh, curiously enough, I understand the fraternity of St. Peter says, well, gee, that, he wasn't talking about us. He wasn't talking about us, which is kind of curious. Um, um, uh, I, I mean, perhaps because in Tradiciones Custodes, he says that uh, groups like that are going to fall under the you know congregation for religious or congregations, whatever. And perhaps they're saying, well, 
this, we're not getting these orders from, you know, this congregation. It's this um, Archbishop Arthur Roche, who is the taken over for Cardinal Sarah in the liturgy office there, who was uh, death on the traditional liturgy. You know, the man is uh, modernist to the core. His DNA is, right, modernist. And, um, and he hates the traditional mass. As soon as he got in, he went to work right, right to work on this to eradicate the traditional mass entirely. But, you know, if one were to say, well, what, what about what Francis is doing now? Um, isn't this shocking? No, it's not shocking at all. It's, it's, shock, if it's shocking, it's shocking that it's only happening now. The modernists intended this to happen immediately after Vatican II. In fact, they moved to make it happen, and as I say, for the first 20 years, there was no provision made for anybody, say, uh, 1962 liturgy or, or, or otherwise, you know, any of the traditional mass. Uh, it, they were trying desperately to uh, obliterate it at that time. And it went on for, as I said, 20 years until Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated bishops for the Society of St. Pius X. Mm -hmm. um, and all Francis is doing, basically, is going back to those times before John Paul II's uh, Ecclesia Dei Commission, before Benedict's Simorum Pontificum, uh, Francis is just resetting back to what they originally planned. And he plans on picking it up from there and moving forward and uh, actually carrying it through to a complete annihilation of the traditional worship of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Father, what, what would you say to uh, someone in Novus Ordo, Novus Ordo Catholic, who may be more uh, traditional, conservative-minded, and they... They they love the the 1962 Latin Mass, um, the Latin Sacraments, and they see this going on. And they see this this trend where, um, you know, Francis is imposing harsher and harsher restrictions on the Latin Mass, and even in this document, he very uh, openly <laughs> opens the door to uh, to just a, a future total ban on any Latin Mass, any Latin Sacraments uh, whatsoever. 1962, right? Um, so what would you say to a conservative-minded Novus Ordo Catholic who sees this going on and they're concerned about it? What, what, what should they do? I would tell them to, um, um, well, uh, face reality. Just face reality, please, okay? This is not a matter of just Francis having a particular animus against the traditional Latin liturgy. We know that he does. Even when he was a child, he mocked the traditional Mass. Even while he was, quote-unquote, serving it, he was mocking it, right? We know that. He said so. Um, but that's not what, what's at stake here. What's at issue here is that this is what Vatican II was all about, that Vatican II was an, a revolution. Uh, Archbishop Vigano, I think, said it very well. It was a modernist revolution in the Church. Um, and others, as Swayden said, it was the, the French Revolution in the, in the, in the church, right? So, um, and this is what Vatican II was all about. The ultimate objective uh, was to um, eradicate the traditional liturgy and replace it with uh, modernist worship of man, basically. Um, and uh, that's what the Novus Ordo was. That's what the New Order is all about. Um, and, you know, a conservative Novus Ordo Catholic should actually face the reality here that Vatican II, what came out of Vatican II, the application of Vatican II, um, um, 
and is all one is all of a piece. It's all one consecutive, uh, contiguous revolution within the church, right? Um, uh, or against the church. And uh, if they if they really want to be Catholic, they they have to be traditional Catholic. There's no such thing as a non-traditional Catholic. There's no such thing as an anti-traditional Catholic because being Catholic means you believe in the, these two fonts or deposits of revelation, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And actually, sacred tradition came first. Okay, you might say sacred scripture grew out of Catholic tradition. So these are the bedrock foundations of the Catholic faith there. And uh, you have a non-traditional Catholic, you have an anti-traditional Catholic, you don't have a Catholic at all. This is what we're dealing with now, okay, in the modernist clergy and their followers. So if they really want to be Catholic in, in our times and, and re remain Catholic, they have to adhere to Catholic tradition and uh, not step aside, not deviate from that in any way. Uh, so not compromise with it. So give up that, that new liturgy of the modernists, give up those new sacramental rites of the modernists, uh, give up the, uh, the, the, the new catechetical teachings of the modernists and so on, um, and return to the traditional Catholic faith, practicing the traditional Catholic faith. And when I say return to it, I mean there, there are some today who were raised in the Novoso who never even were raised in the traditional faith and don't even know it. But they're discovering it. And by the grace of God, they're recognizing that that is the traditional Catholic faith. I mean, people who've been raised in the Novo Soto uh, might be, you know, in their 20s, 30s, or 40s now. And many of them just, they, they find it vacuous. And they, many of them have left the Novo Soto because they find nothing there. Nothing supernatural there. It's entirely naturalistic uh, enterprise. And... Uh, some of them find their way to a traditional Catholic church. They find their way to the traditional Catholic faith by one means or another. And they realize this is what I should believe. As a Catholic, this is what I, that I am bound to believe. This is what the Catholic church really stands for. And so we find many young people, young families coming to the traditional mass who never knew it, who were not raised in it. Um, it's almost a miracle, really. This is why Francis wrote his Traditiones Custodes, because he saw that rather than, you know, being a, a channel of bringing people into to the Novus Ordo uh, by allowing them to have access to the 1962 Latin liturgy, uh, people were actually taking their first steps to discover what the traditional Catholic faith really is. And when they found that, they found home, right? They, found, they, they discovered this is where, this is home, this is where I belong. This is found really the worship of God and uh, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, not the Novosoto party time, holy happy hour, whatever they want to make it. Um, they found this is true divine worship and the, and the sacrifice of the Mass, the sacrifice of Calvary. Um, that's why Francis said we cannot allow this anymore. They're discovering the traditional faith. We have to stop this. Mm -hmm. Father, um, we know that, that God often brings uh, greater good from an evil. Do you think that uh, this could possibly be the case of that, where we have all of this um, 
evil hatred coming from the, the Vatican and Francis. Uh, do you think that God could possibly use this as a means to draw souls from the Novus Ordo to the traditional religion? Have you seen uh, yourself personally? Yes, in any yes. Cases? Well, I think Francis has recognized something that's real, that people are, through the 1962 Latin Mass liturgy, finding their way, you know, to, to discover a tradition of the church uh, that they might not even have suspected for much of their life. Um, and, uh, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's like going through the first door, in a sense, uh, or coming to the threshold. Because if somebody discovers the 1962 Latin liturgy, they, they, they need to realize that that already is a compromise, that that is already a product of a process of change that began two decades before or so. And um, hopefully they will not stop there, but they will continue to discover the traditions of the church and come back fully to practice the traditional faith. But yes, Tom, I, I do believe that it is a, uh, for many it has been like a lighthouse, you know, um, and uh, uh, getting them into, into, into the harbor. But once they get into the harbor, I think they need to dock, get off the ship, and they, they need to get out of the dry land, and, and that's the solidity of the traditional faith again. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, in any case, maybe a poor, poor analogy, I suppose, but I, I guess it conveys what I, mm -hmm. sure. I mean. Um, there, there are those who, um, want both, as it were. They want to be new order and they want to be traditional. It's like saying, I want to be modernist and I want to be Catholic. There are certain things about modernism I like, there are certain things about Catholicism I like. I think a certain Father Barbara, Barber, who is somehow associated with the Society of St. Pius X, pointed out in some interview that, well, the, the, you know, modernism isn't all that bad. There's some good points of it. St. <laughs> Pius X says it's the synthesis of all heresies. How can you say that? But this is an example of somebody who wants to be uh, as Catholic as I'd like and at the same time as modernist as I'd like. It doesn't work that way. It's like... Um, it can't it can't be that way. It's a it's a split personality, and um, I'm hoping that those who um, you know discover um, the revolution that's happening and discover you mentioned the word hatred, and it really is a hatred. Modernists hate the traditional faith. They hate the traditional faith. Um, read Pashendi, uh, the uh, encyclical of Saint Pius X, and he, he pretty much explains that too. <laughs> and um, and Francis, you know, does not conceal his his it's just his his loathing for the traditional Catholic liturgy, the traditional mass and the traditional sacraments, the traditional devotions of the Catholic Church. He loathes them, um, and that's a, that is a form of hatred. You know, um, he mocks them. He even says that those who are attached to them are. Are under the the control of the devil, even it talks about them being mentally ill, <laughs> you know, for wanting yeah. uh, to, to because of their attachment to the traditions of the Catholic Church in her worship. So that that is certainly a manifestation of a real deep seated malice on his part to what is traditional Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think your use of the word hatred is is. Uh, in any way, exaggeration or extreme. I think it's exactly what we're dealing with there. 
And uh, when people see that, I'd like to think that some people would recoil against it and think, this is not right. Uh, and actually be repulsed by it. You can see it in Francis's face even when he talks about these things. Uh, so um, the expression on his face sometimes is actually frightening. It, it, it kind of brings to mind, uh, there, there's a scene in one of the, I think I've mentioned it before, <clears throat> there's a scene in, in one of the um, Lord of the Rings uh, uh, films, uh, the, the trilogy, I guess, right? When uh, Bilbo, the original ring bearer, you know, is an old man now, <clears throat> and uh, he's got the ring, and um, I guess the, some question of him surrendering it again. And for a moment, uh, this, this kindly old gentleman hobbit, you know, suddenly he shows this ferocity. Of, uh, no one is going to take this from him, you know. Do you recall it? Yes, okay. <laughs> There's just this flash on the screen. It probably lasts no more than a second, but it's the kind of thing that startles you because you weren't expecting this, this kindly old gentleman to suddenly flare up with this, 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 this intense, ferocious uh, resistance, right? To, uh, and uh, that's, that's what the expression of Francis's face reminds me of. Um, it's, it's horrific, really. It really betokens a genuine malice against the traditional Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic worship of the Church. Wow. Okay. That's what modernists do, though. And he is a modernist. He's died in the wall. That's why they put him where he is, to finish the work of uh, the massacre, right? right. The massacre of, of the faith, which I fear will uh, lead to the massacre of the Catholics. <laughs> Traditional Catholics, perhaps. Well, so pray, we pray hard enough. Father, uh, someone who was not a modernist and uh, one of the, perhaps you could say, original traditional Catholics, uh, we celebrate his feast day today, St. Thomas the Apostle. Uh, we had a question concerning uh, St. Thomas the Apostle. Father, perhaps you could say a few words on him, considering it is his feast day. But uh, one of our viewers said he has heard that uh, after our Lord's ascension, St. Thomas the Apostle evangelized some of the people in the Middle East, and he actually even started the Chaldean Catholic Rite, and he wanted to run that by you, Father, and know if that was, in fact, true, that St. Thomas the Apostle began the Well, St. Thomas the Apostle didn't go eastward. He's more, well, he's known for, uh, especially apostolic work, work in India. Hmm. Kerala, India, this is the area of Kerala, India, is uh, has a, I think, the largest concentration of Catholics, right? Uh, Christians, I should say, in India, and uh, many, some of them are schismatics now, unfortunately. I think the majority of those Christians are now schismatics. Um, but uh, they look upon the Apostle St. Thomas as their uh, patriarch, in a sense, right? From whom the, the faith of Christ was first preached in India. So, um, Yes, uh, St. Thomas certainly uh, did carry out his apostolic labors in the East. And uh, why, why, why is that? He asked about the Chaldean Catholic Rite. Was, no. that, was that founded by St. Thomas the Apostle? Uh, that I'd have to investigate. Yeah. I'd have to see. 
I'm sure there is a connection, but I'm not sure uh, what it is exactly, okay? Mm -hmm. So I'll have to investigate whether that hail is from St. Thomas the Apostle or not. Um, um, you know, the question is, uh, for me, really, uh, uh, Chaldean right in, in what is now India, right? Uh, how prevalent that is there. And I must say that... Uh, I'm uh, kind of uh, murky on that right now. Okay. I, th I attribute it more to old age than anything because um, my brain cells are trying to uh, uh, trying to communicate with one another. But I shall, I'll duly investigate that with regard to the Chaldean, right? Okay, sounds good. And uh, if you wouldn't mind bringing that up next time, we'll uh, give a full report. Yes, Father. All right. Uh, then, Father, we had a viewer asks if we are allowed to pray for deceased non-Catholics. Could you explain the Catholic teaching on this? Yes, we certainly are. In fact, uh, in charity, we, we should pray for them. Um, how so? Well, we can ask God to have mercy on them. You know, we're not saying that they were they died in the state of sanctifying grace and were saved by their non-Catholicism, right? Mm -hmm. What we're we're hoping for is that uh, God provided the grace for them uh, before they departed this world, the grace of conversion, that he gave them the grace of faith, the grace of hope, and the grace of charity, the supernatural virtues, and they died in the state of grace. We're, we're, we can pray for that. Um, even years, decades, centuries after their deaths, we can, we can ask God to have provided that grace for them. And... Um, you know, if you were to say, well, I mean, isn't it, isn't it certain that if uh, my, let's say, my uh, Protestant, my Muslim, my atheist brother-in-law who died five years ago, isn't it, isn't it certain that they went to hell, that that person went to hell? And the answer is no. It is not certain. And the church herself does not have any authority to pronounce anyone in hell. The Church has the authority to tell us who has been saved and who is even now in heaven, right? Through canonization. And, um, but uh, the Church has never pronounced solemnly on the condemnation of anyone, even Judas, uh, even Hitler, that's all, right? even Stalin or Mao, um, because that's not what the Church was established to do here on earth, you know? The church was uh, meant to, to judge the actions of being, the evil actions of people. But, um, you know, the, in the internal forum, the state of their soul, well, people, we are meant to accuse ourselves in the confessional. But as last Sunday's epistle made very clear, we are not to, to try to judge as, as though, as much as we are obliged to judge the external actions that people perform, whether they are morally right or morally wrong. We are forbidden to, to try to uh, pretend to be able to judge the, the actual uh, state of their soul before God, because only God knows that, and he is the judge. So, um, I mean, we can't even judge whether a, a Catholic who dies, you know, is saved or not. It's not our province to have that certitude. Uh, only God knows what graces that he gave, and only God knows what we did with those graces. So, um, our, our position is simply uh, to pray. 
to pray for God's mercy, to pray for God's grace for everyone. And uh, that, that hope that, that they were able to, they were not only offered the graces, but that they were able to receive them. They were given not only as sufficient, but even as efficacious graces to them to accomplish their purpose for the, sanct- for the justification of the soul, the sanctification of the soul, and ultimately the salvation of the soul. Yes, we not only can, but we really must pray for them. Okay. We have an obligation out of piety to pray for our loved ones. And that's not just for Catholics, loved ones. Right. Okay. All right. Um, another email. Father, could you explain the meaning of, quote, offering it up? Mr. says that he hears that phrase a lot, and he does not know exactly what it means and, or how we offer and unite our sufferings to Christ. So, Father, could you uh, please provide a uh, kind of a Catholic teaching on this and how one offers their sufferings up and unites them to Christ? Well, that's an act of the will. You know, it's, um, in other words, one has to make a decision and say, well, I have a, a cross to carry, or I have a, a suffering, um, whatever it might be, uh, some great hardship, uh, some something that irritates me, something that aggravates me, something that um, uh, threatens me, and um, I can I can decide to um, complain about it, right? I can decide to complain about it to my fellow men. I can decide to complain about it to God. I can even I can even blame God for it, right? And uh, find fault with God for this suffering that has come to me. And there are a lot of people who do that. <laughs> um, but then those who have faith, hope, and charity, and have a certain love for God, uh, notably the saints, have written on the subject, they look upon these hardships in a very different way. Not as just unmitigated evils to be avoided uh, at all costs, and then to be resisted at all costs, um, but they look upon them as um, opportunities to glorify God by their patience. And um, why? Because in being patient, they are actually submitting their own wills to the divine will. And they're following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord said, if you want to be my disciples, you must take up your cross every day and follow me. Meaning, follow my example. It was the example in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, take let this chalice pass away from me without my drinking of it, but not my will, but thy will be done. That is our Lord Jesus Christ formally and explicitly offering offering up for us, okay, uh, the submission of his will to the will of the God the Father uh, in embracing the suffering. Uh, that actually accomplished two things. It accomplished the reparation of our sins to God the Father and this, the insult of our sins to God the Father, and also accomplished the uh, redemption for us such that we could be justified from our sins and then sanctified also by the power of grace. So. Um, this is the, the example of our Lord in offering it up. Um, and notice when our Lord said that in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, this is recorded in the Gospels precisely so that it would 
be known by the followers of our Lord Jesus Christ down through all the centuries, that this is what our Lord said in the garden. And he said it for our instruction. <laughs> uh, he, he said it not only for our instruction, of course, because he said it to the Father because that's what he, he meant, okay? <clears throat> He's speaking as man here. Father, not my will, but thy will be done. His human will submitted to the divine will. But he, he saw to it, and through the agency of the Holy Ghost, it was made uh, manifest to us by it being recorded in the Gospels so that we would know it and we could learn from it. And this was the example of our Lord submitting his human will to the divine will that God, was asking, that God the Father was asking him to carry that cross for us, to die on that cross for us, to offer his sacrificial death for us, out of love for us. And our Lord was willing to do that for us. Now, when we say we are called upon to offer up in a very, very simple, uh, a much less, uh, shall we say, um, uh, terrifying and terrible way, we are meant to offer up the trials and contradictions, the adversity, um, the injuries, the illnesses, the contempt and the insults uh, that the world gives us, the abuse of the world and all the rest. We're meant to um, do exactly what our Lord did in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are meant to simply say, oh my God, I, I accept this in all humility. Um, it is by thy will that this is permitted to happen to me. And I adore thy holy will. I feel free to ask you, you know, my God, please take this suffering from me. But ultimately, um, I will endure it out of love for you. If you take it from me, I will, I will adore you, and I will thank you for that. If you, if you don't take it from me, I trust that it will be for my salvation, for the salvation of people I love. And so I gladly carry it. Not my will, but thy will be done. It's a matter of, of, of repeating the very thought of our Lord Jesus Christ, to offer it up to our Lord. So uh, I don't know if I'm making things any clearer by saying this, but... Um, I tell people uh, when they've lost a loved one um, and they're concerned about the salvation, you know, they're, they're concerned about doing what they can for the benefit of the soul of the loved one they've lost, <clears> that probably the most powerful thing they can do at that moment is offer the heaviest cross but they're carrying at that moment, and that is the cross of grief. The grief that their loved one has passed away. And uh, there is an enormous, enormous grief that comes from that. Anyone who's lost a loved one, as you know what that means, and you know what that means, <clears throat> experiences that grief. We know. Um, we know our Lord himself. We, 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 at the grave of Lazarus, our Lord was himself moved to weep openly. But he wasn't weeping at the death of Lazarus. He was weeping at the tears of those who were mourning Lazarus. It was the grief of those around him that moved him to grief, right? So we know our Lord himself experienced that grief with us. He, true condolences, right? True condolences for our Lord. And so if someone can uh, make an act of the will to submit to that and say, well, my Lord, I have this grief. I can't escape it. I don't want you to take it from me. 
because the only way I could escape this grief of my loss, of my loved one, is to forget about them entirely. Just absolutely erase them from my memory. Then I wouldn't mourn them. Or, remembering them, then I don't care. <laughs> then I don't love them anymore. But I don't want either one of those. I would not want to forget this person ever. And I would never want to remember them and not love them. And so, in a sense, I'm sort of sentenced to experience that grief by the very love that I have for them, that I would not part with. And if I would not love with that memory, and I would not love part with that love, I will not part with that grief either. Right? Choice we make. So, so we can say, well, Lord, I'm going to do this then. I'm going to take that grief, and I'm going to offer it to you as a sacrifice. That'll be my sacrifice to you. I will carry this grief willingly for for love of you. Right? I accept it. I accept it as a cross. My share in your cross. It's a little splinter, but that's okay. Even a little splinter, okay. That's pretty heavy for me because I'm only a mere mortal and um, <clears throat> a mortal sinner at that. And I will carry that splinter of the cross for you. And I'm asking you, my God, to take the sacrifice that I'm offering now, turn it into grace, and give it to the soul of my loved one. And uh, that is one of the most powerful things a person can do. Uh, to accept that from the hand of God, as a, as a cross that God gives us. It's a cross that is, is forged not of wood, it's, it's made of love, really, ultimately. So, uh, and, and, you know, one can pray and do a lot of other things, uh, make holy cards and, uh, for their loved one. And, but there is something unique about the offering of that grief, uh, that generous and loving offering of that grief to God, trusting in his, in him, in his goodness and his mercy to be able to transform that into graces. There's something very pleasing to God about that. It really is a form of worship of God, a form of adoration of God to do that. Again, what does it come down to? It all comes down to our Lord himself and what he said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Mm -hmm. Father, this idea is something unique to the Catholic faith. The beauty is one of the beauties of the Catholic faith as mm -hmm. well is that uh, you don't really see this at all in, in any other uh, religions where they're much more much yeah. more natural, nat naturally minded. I really haven't seen the concept in any other, in any other, even even uh, Protestantism. I just haven't seen that, mm -hmm. even the concept expounded upon too much. They're saved by faith alone, and so the 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 beginning premise of Protestantism is that um, our our wills, our hearts are so completely corrupted by sin that we're not capable of doing anything good, even resisting temptation. All we can do is believe that Christ died for us, and that in itself, and that alone, can can be our salvation. Um, so, uh, the idea of you know carrying the cross with and for our Lord um, as an act of love that might be an individual thing. There might be certain Protestants who grew up, you know, in, in whatever Protestant sect they belong to, who actually think like that. But I don't think it comes from their...
Protestant upbringing or their Protestant uh, uh, teachings. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very individual thing. But this is what our Catholic Church teaches us. This is the teaching of our Church. And every, everybody who has raised Catholic has heard it a thousand times, offer it up, offer it up, offer it up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, even as children, we wonder, well, okay, well, what is that? How do I do that? So it's a very good question. Mm -hmm. uh, the answer to the question is really a foundational pillar of the spiritual life. Really. So we need to discover the answer to that. And I just made a very poor effort to mm -hmm. explain it, but... Why, Father, why is it so hard for us to offer things up when we can, we can actually benefit from them, though? If we offer something up, we can turn that misfortune into merit, and yet we still find it so hard. Yeah, we're, we're offended, though. We're offended that our wills are being contradicted. You know? I mean, our passions demand relief. You know, Our passions demand relief. They're not rational, they're animalistic, they just demand relief. And uh, only faith can, can make um, suffering really beautiful and, and, and salutary and give it the power you know, of the cross. Only faith can do that. Faith, hope, and charity, of course. Um, so, uh, but, you know, if, if, you, if, if it goes direct to your pride, if it's an affront to your pride, that you are called upon to endure this insult or to have to suffer this illness or this debility or whatever. Um, it, it is a direct um, threat. Uh, it, it's a direct affront. It's, it, we, take the, uh, we don't take it well. <laughs> right? um, it's a matter of humbling ourselves. We don't do that willingly, do we? Um, so all too often, these things, instead of humbling us, merely humiliate us because we fight them rather than by faith and hope and love, embracing them out of uh, true devotion to our Lord and a desire to unite with him. I mean, look at our blessed mother. I mean, she wanted to unite with him uh, so completely in uh, in his public life and his, well, his private life, certainly, his public life and, and his, his sufferings. Um, and that's what love does. That's what love does. So, uh, you know, I, I think it is a measure of where we are in the spiritual life that we can gracefully endure contradictions. You look at God and uh, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and all of the contradictions and the insults that he puts up with day by day by day, moment by moment, from mankind. And um, you see the sacrifice that he made in order to uh, redeem us from all of, these, all of these insults that we heap upon him, that we shower upon him, that we uh, just launch against him from planet Earth uh, day and night. And you think, what, what kind of patience is this? What kind of patience has God to have? And what could possibly motivate that patience? And it, it's really his divine love for us. It's quite amazing, beyond anything we can conceive of. Um, um, so, in any case, uh, you, you ask, why do we find it so difficult when we, we believe in a God who is so generous and so patient, uh, so patient, and it manifests his love for us. Why do we find it so difficult even to endure the slightest 
contradiction, right? The slightest uh, insult or offense. Why does it grate on us? Why do we stew about it? And, uh, you know, fantasize about revenge. <laughs> well, what can I say? In our pettiness, we, we're we just uh, little, little balls of pride. <laughs> but, uh, uh, God, God has the, the antidote for that. I can rescue us from that. Yeah. Well, Father, uh, we only have a few days left before uh, Christmas Day. Could you uh, give us any words of encouragement to finish the Advent season profitably? Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. Well, everyone, by the time uh, you know, most people see this program, it'll be Christmas Day already, of course. But I'd like everybody to see it in the next, uh, you know, seventy-two hours, if they can. But. Um, well, Advent really is a time when, as the Gospel of last Sunday says, um, <clears throat> make the rough ways plain, right? Um, level the, uh, the hills and the mountains of human arrogance. Uh, fill in the valleys, right, of our depravity. And um, to make the crooked ways straight, insofar as we are devious, right, dishonest, Straighten that out. Be forthright. Right? All of these things, the voice of St. John the Baptist in the desert is telling us to do all of these things. And each one of these commands has a special meaning in every life. And so we are meant to do that. And uh, during Advent, we should apply ourselves to that. We should apply ourselves to uh, examining our consciences, asking God to shed light deep into the recesses of our consciences and find those elevated uh, hills of arrogance and find the valleys, the abscesses, and find the crooked ways and then repent of them. Uh, because if God shows them to us and gives us the grace to repent of them, he's also going to give us the grace to fix it, to make things right, to overcome them. We have to pray for that. It's not something that comes naturally. It comes supernaturally. So we have to, to uh, pray and beg God for that. But something I think is, that is very significant. Uh, is, uh, you know, the first, first Sunday of Advent, what, what is the gospel about the first Sunday of Advent? The end times? Right, right the, the end times. Christ coming at the end, right, to judge. And uh, you know how the, the first uh, Sunday of Advent gospel from St. Luke says, that when these things come to pass, we're not to be like the, the world that does not know God. Um, we are meant to lift up our heads and, and, and be filled with joy at the prospect of, of our Lord's triumph. We want to see his triumph. Uh, this is one of the things that is the great joy of our lives, to think of the triumph of our Lord, right? And we want to not only see it, we want to join him in it, we want to be a part of that, to take part in it. So that's why St. Luke says, well, actually recording the words of our Lord, uh, lift up your heads, lift up your heads. Don't hang your heads at that point. Lift up your heads. Lift them heavenward. Get them away from the things of the earth. Look toward heaven. That's what we need to do. So the very first Sunday of Advent tells us that's where we have to look. We have to stop being focused on the things of the world. And we have to look beyond those things. We have to look to the things of heaven, and ultimately, we have to look to our Lord, 
at his kingship, at his triumph. That should be what we are preoccupied with in our thoughts. And then you go to the end of Advent. We just had Ember Saturday in Advent. And you were there. You probably attended Mass that day, I imagine, right? I suppose. Sure. Uh, first, uh, well, you, you have in Ember Saturday, you have the series of prophecies, right? And then you come to the actual epistle of the Mass. What was the epistle of the Mass for the first, the, the, the Ember Saturday? This is the Saturday every year that comes right before Christmas. Just so happens that this year, Christmas is on a Saturday. Okay. But the Saturday before, Christmas Day, this year as every year, has as its epistle, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you know what that's about. The coming of the Antichrist. And, you know, a Catholic who attends Mass on the, the Saturday before Christmas Day listens to that epistle. He's just listened to a series of prophecy about the coming of Christ and the rejoicing and the beauty and the fruitfulness of Christ coming into the world. And then immediately we have the epistle there where St. Paul is talking about the coming of the Antichrist. And that's rather alarming. But what the church is doing there is presenting, she's kind of tying together the whole of Advent with the first Sunday gospel of Advent, saying, look toward the future. Look to the future coming of Christ. This isn't just a matter of looking back and having warm fuzzies about a Christ child being born in a manger. It's not just about shepherds and sheep and kings and gold, frankincense and myrrh and all those other things that, you know, make it a very pretty picture for us. It's, it's about him. It's about our Lord. It's, it's about the, 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 the identity of the individual in the manger who is both divine and human in nature or natures, but is the divine person of the Son of God who is God and man there. And he will come to judge the living and the dead, as we say in all of our creeds. And um, so every Advent, the Church wants to remind us, we're not just reminiscing about what our Lord did 2,000 years ago. We're looking forward. And especially as we advance in time and we get closer and closer to that time, spoken of in the Gospel of St. Luke and St. Matthew about the end times, all the more urgently does the Church require us to look to heaven, not to the things of the earth, but to the things of heaven, and look to our Lord uh, in his coming triumph, and, and let that sustain us, let that uh, occupy our minds and our hearts so that the things of the world become insignificant, right? That they don't dominate our minds and our hearts. But the thought of Christ, our Lord, his kingship, and uh, as I say, his triumph should dominate our thoughts during this time. So, um, you know, we only have a few days of, of Advent left this year, but that epistle for Ember Saturday should still uh, be very fresh in our minds here. And um, we should uh, hearken to the, the voice of the church, like the voice crying in the wilderness today, to make straight the ways of the Lord. Right? Bring low those arrogant valleys and fill in those, those 
you know, fetid uh, trenches and uh, ravines and abysses in the, in the soul. Fill them in. Fill them in with grace. Uh, humble them by grace. Uh, make them straight by grace. Uh, why? Because, well, uh, the day of the triumph of our Lord is approaching. And uh, when that comes, uh, we want to uh, have the wedding garment on. We want to be ready, ready to greet him and hail him as our Lord and King. Whether it's seeing him in the manger, we hail him as our Lord and our King. When we ponder his future coming, we see him as our Lord and our King. Everywhere, that's how we regard him. So, anyway, um, you uh, you have th some thoughts of your own on the subject. I'd like to hear what they are. So. Amen, Father. You're a man who, uh, <laughs> who does meditate, right? Yes, Father. And I'm sure you've been meditating upon these things. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Father, thanks for uh, being here tonight. Thanks for all of your time. I appreciate it. And a very merry and blessed Christmas. Well, I wish you a very blessed Christmas too, Tom. And, of course, the entire Christmas season. Remember, we're still in Advent. Christmas season hasn't even started yet. Out in the world, yeah. I mean, they're commercial Christmas. The world, what the world calls Christmas. And now they're trying to just do away with it entirely. Now it's just happy holidays, whatever that means. Um, inevitably, they would try to do away with Christmas because they, they did away with it when they started making it, uh, replacing Advent, right? I mean, uh, and uh, producing this fake Christmas um, such that on Christmas Day, they stopped celebrating. Well, for Catholics, we start celebrating on the day our Lord is born mm -hmm. because we're celebrating his birth. We're not celebrating the economy or, uh, you know, uh, what the world wants to make of him. Uh, and for us, Christmas begins on, on Christmas Day and carries throughout the entire 40 days to February 2nd. So we are obliged to celebrate the birth of our Lord all 40 days there. So please, I mean, it's kind of late to mention this now, but don't exhaust yourself by celebrating the world Christmas so that on Christmas Day, you're entirely shot <laughs> you know or you're entirely exhausted and all the all the festivity is kind of gone so that on, on december 26th you're carrying this this dried out christmas tree to put curbside for them to take away and that's the end of it no that's the beginning of it you know that's when we really need to uh, begin celebrating when our lord is actually born that's the real christmas amen it's great Thank you, Father. Thank you, Tom. Yep. God bless you all. Thanks to all our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima as you consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.